I think this last year has really shown that, you know, the change in the macro environment, I think we believe that's going to continue to be front and center for the next, you know, year or two as um, the inflation dynamics play out, as, you know, the impact of central bank tightening on economies plays out. And so, you know, we believe that this is a really good environment for this strategy set and we're excited, you know, about where it's going to go from here. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today Alan Dunn and I are joined by Kevin Cole, CEO and CIO at Campbell & Company, as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend-following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Kevin, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have really been looking forward to our conversation. How are you doing? I hope you had a good start to the new year. I did. Uh, Nils and Alan, thank you so much for having me. It's um, an exciting time to be in this industry and it's great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Now, before we dig into all of the different topics we're going to discuss, I would like maybe to set the stage a little bit for our conversation so that the audience knows a bit about your firm's background. So perhaps, Kevin, could you share just a few highlights about the type of strategies you focus on and, and where the business stands as we head into 2023? Sure. Well, Campbell is a uh, systematic multi-strat or quant multi-strat hedge fund. Uh, we've been in business for 50 years now. And um, as you may know, we got our start um, back in the 70s in the early days of trend following on, you know, of course, liquid futures markets at that time. Um, grew up with the, you know, the expansion of the the market set in industries. And I would say it was in the late 90s and early 2000s that we you know, really started to expand the conception of what we could do um, beyond pure trend into quant macro, into equity market neutral, um, short-term statistically driven strategies. And, um, you know, throughout that whole period, I would say we've seen the value of the systematic approach. We've seen the value of trend as being one important, you know, part of that strategy set. And also we've seen the, the importance of continued focus on research and innovation. I think we understand that markets are really competitive. Um, the dynamics change, the themes that are prevalent evolve through time, and we need to continue to evolve our strategies and risk management to stay at the forefront. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. And by the way, congratulations. I mean, 50 years. I mean, I work for a firm that's only 48 years old, but 50 years, it's just such a magical milestone, I think. And I, I don't think a lot of people actually appreciate what it really means to have a 50-year a track record and how valuable uh, that is. But uh, anyways, our conversation today will be a little kind of back and forth, different topics uh, that Alan and I picked out. Um, so why don't you, as usual, Alan, why don't you kick it off and, and dive into our first topic? 
great. Thanks, Niels. And uh, hi, Kevin. Nice to chat to you. Um, you touched on a few kind of key components of your approach in terms of things that uh, I guess have underpinned a lot of what you do, you know, systematic strategies, trend being at the core that focus on research and um, and innovation. Um, if you were to kind of package that into maybe an investment philosophy or a set of beliefs that underpin, you know, how you approach markets and why, why there is an alpha uh, to be extracted from alpha uh, from markets, uh, you know, how would you describe the investment philosophy? Well, I would say our philosophy you know, really starts with the belief that markets are not perfectly competitive, but they are not um, terribly far from um, efficiency and, um, you know, being perfectly competitive. That means that we can find opportunities that um, arise out of, uh, you know, investor psychology, um, you know, maybe behavioral mistakes that investors make, um, the interaction of investors and the impact those have on markets, the interaction of, um, you know, central banks and economic forces with markets, all of those create opportunities for us. But we have to, you know, work hard to uncover those opportunities to make sure they hold up to uh, research scrutiny. And also that, again, we continue to, you know, change our thinking and the types of models we build as um, markets evolve. So, you know, that's, I would say, the core philosophy. That means that, you know, research is the core of the team. It's over half of the the members of our firm. And, um, you know, we continue to really focus on that research and innovation process. I um, mean, we do believe that quant and systematic based strategies have a lot of um, benefits and, you know, they really work well for us. Um, that means that, you know, we can continue to, um, you know, work efficiently to evolve the strategy set and, um, you know, avoid some of those investor behavioral biases that we mentioned earlier. Fair enough, and and I guess you know as as the business has evolved, I, you, you've you've developed multiple programs, um, so probably hard to say what what the investment objective of of your of your trading is. I guess it, it probably varies, but I mean when you look at the quant space and managed futures, very often you know there's a little bit of a debate. You know, is the objective absolute return or is it absolute return plus crisis alpha uh, or some kind of protection? So I mean when you're constructing portfolios um, and programs. What are you thinking in, in terms of, of the objectives for, for those programs? Yeah, absolutely. I would say we do across our programs want to deliver strong absolute returns, um, low correlation or diversification to traditional assets and um, a stable level of risk. Now, depending on the particular program or um, you know, way that's packaged, that can vary a little the weight that we put on those different things. So we start with the Campbell Apps return portfolio, which is our flagship. And that trades about um, 130 derivatives markets, about 5,000 cash equities. That's roughly equally balanced between trend, macro, short-term, and equity market neutral. And in that program, we're laser focused on delivering the strongest risk adjuster return, you know, highest sharp, uh, you know, one or above sharp over the long term, um, stable level of risk of about 10 vol. And then again, low correlation, meaning roughly zero correlation on average to stocks and bonds. And also in that program, we're looking to deliver meaningful alpha above and beyond, you know, what you might call alt-risk premium factors. Um, now, beyond the absolute return program, we do have a managed futures program that is essentially a carve-out of absolute return without equity market neutral. So the objectives there are largely the same. We want to deliver, again, strong, sharp, stable risk, low correlation, and meaningful alpha. We do also offer um, standalone uh, trend strategies um, that are 
primarily for you know large institutional investors like um, U.S. pensions and investors such as that that are looking for that more trend specific profile. So their you know strong returns are an important part of that, but also we would have more of an emphasis on delivering that complementarity to traditional assets, and that could be what you call crisis alpha or risk mitigation, um, and you know that would be focusing on very liquid strategies, liquid markets trend, you know, is the the dominant strategy. And, you know, again, something that will deliver, particularly when an investor's traditional assets are not working so well. Now, you know, Kevin, when you write down a set of questions and topics that you want to speak about, you, of course, don't exactly know what well, uh, you know what has been said prior to this, so so I hope you don't get it, take it the wrong way. But you mentioned sharp, focusing on sharp a couple of times, and actually one of the, the questions we had was was kind of inspired by Cliff Asnes, because he wrote a paper recently where you know if we read between the line, I think, or maybe you don't even have to read between the lines. He's kind of saying, you know, have we become too concerned about the sharp? Right? I mean, are we putting stuff together? Are we doing things that kind of uh, takes us away. Now, it seems to me like you've done this obviously on purpose. You're not saying, oh, we'll do trend, but then we'll stick something in and don't mention it to people and, and then it will have a better shot. But but tell me a little bit about maybe the process that led you to say, well, actually, instead of staying with our roots as kind of a pure trend follower, we're going to focus on absolute return and we're going to do that with a much higher risk-adjusted return profile. Um, I'm curious about that sort of evolution? Yeah, it's an important question. And I think we were, you know, on the early side in terms of thinking about these questions and, you know, thinking about how we thoughtfully expand the strategy set. So again, we, you know, started doing this work in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I think there's a couple of um, important considerations. Number one, you know, it goes back to that investment philosophy that we believe that there are you know, opportunities that we can uncover and extract in markets and, you know, trend strategies using momentum signals is one um, useful way to uncover those opportunities. But, you know, it's a rich opportunity set, Um, you know, the macro um, themes that are, um, you know, constantly taking place in markets really create a lot of opportunities for us to use um, fundamental data, macroeconomic um, releases. Um, sometimes the actual mathematical models that we would use to trade those types of signals might look like a momentum signal, but applied on fundamental information. Other times they would be relative value or other types of, you know, nonlinear statistical models. Um, when we think about short-term opportunities in markets, it's understandable that to believe that there are speculative dynamics that take place in the short term that we can actually uncover using these statistical models and trade trade those. Um, in equity market neutral, I mean, equities are a very rich data set where you might have some um, themes. There are factors that might look like a momentum factor, but that's one of you know many types of themes and alpha opportunities you can capture in equity. So again, it's a very rich space. And I guess we would say, why would you want to limit yourself to one area? Now, I think when we think about the pitfalls of expansion and maybe some of the um, some of the problems that some managers have run into as they've expanded beyond pure trend, you have to think about, are you really uncovering these true alpha opportunities? Are you increasing your sharp by um, less high quality um, means? And one, I think, trap that people might have fallen into over the last 10 or 15 years was that if you could easily pick up beta exposure to, for example, long stock and long bond, and sometimes that would be you know, in a very simplistic way, but sometimes you could have a very complex model that might hide the reasons you're picking that up. And maybe if an investor is not thinking carefully, they may not even realize that they're picking up that um, that bias. I mean, that would be something that 
we would not want to be driving our increase in SHARP. And indeed, our research process would actually, you know, take a close look to make sure that we're not picking up biases that may increase the back test of SHARP, but really not increase the alpha of the strategy. So I guess to summarize, I would say, you know, we believe that um, trend strategies do form an important part of the overall strategy set, but there's a you know, rich set of opportunities beyond that that we want to take advantage of. Yeah. Just staying with one uh, thing that you mentioned, you mentioned you trade more than 5,000 different equities. Now, I don't come across so many of our colleagues that trades a lot of uh, individual uh, stocks. Two questions, I guess. One is very simple, whether you, you know, uh, what type of strategies do you apply to equities? But if you also apply kind of pure trend to individual equities, my question would be whether you think that if you were a trend follower, and you wanted to include exposure to equities because our industry historically we focused on the index, not the individual equities. I'm curious about what your research have found. If if you have looked at this, whether it's better to try and do trend following also on the individual equities rather than just staying on 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 the the indices. Yes. Well, we've been trading equities since around 2001, 2002. Um, we got our start in StatArb, and that's still about a third of the, uh, the overall risk allocation of our equity uh, book. Um, and really, StatArb you know, rhymes somewhat with the short-term strategies on the future side in terms of the underlying dynamics we're trying to capture there and the, you know, essentially the time horizon and, and other features. Um, we also, over time, added um, fundamental strategies, which would be um, you know, things related to the health of the company, the quality of the company, um, alternative data sets can be really, really useful there. We're typically not looking for traditional, um, you know, risk premia or equity factors like the simple value factor. We're looking to go beyond that to capture other dynamics. But um, that's a pretty rich, op rich opportunity set. And it rhymes actually with macro on the, the future side. And so finally, we get to momentum, which, you know, again, is um, parallel to the uh, trend strategies on the future side. But all of these strategies, momentum, fundamental, and um, StatArb or uh, short term, in equities are all market neutral to the overall direction. So it's not picking up overall equity data. And indeed, the vast majority of these strategies are also neutralized at the sector level. So they're really looking for you know, micro relative value relationships among individual stocks. And for that reason, even within momentum, the correlation of equity market neutral momentum to um, trend on the future side tends to be pretty low. There tends to be, you know, some positive correlation there, but maybe on average, you know, call it 0.2 or 0.3. You know, we believe that there's really not that much margin of value to trading trend signals directionally on individual stocks relative to what we get by trading a broad set of uh, stock indices on the future side. So we focus on, you know, again, more of those relative value neutral opportunities to trade momentum in cash equities. Alan, why don't you dig into one of your yeah. favorite topics? <laughs> well, actually, I was going to jump forward a bit just uh, and, and ask, as Campbell run a, a number of different strategies, kind of from kind of diversified trend to pure trend to multi-strat, you know, when you're thinking about the role of those in the context of an overall portfolio, would you say 
Um, or how would you think about that in the sense that, you know, uh, if people typically allocate to trend following um, and manage futures as a portfolio diversifier, and we've been making the case for how that makes sense at the moment, or certainly has been for the last 12, 15 months, particularly with low bond yields, etc. Um, so thinking about that, and you, you know, most allocators would have a slot for diversifiers and absolute return. Would, would you say there's a merit for pure trend over diversified trend over multi-strat? Or how would you if, if somebody was looking for guidance as to which of the programs how would you think about which one to allocate in the context of a diversified multi-asset portfolio yeah it really depends on the investor and um i would say their you know maybe their sophistication and also their um you know the amount of capital they have to allocate and that would probably determine where we would think the best fit would be i think for a large institutional investor that has you know extremely diversified book and a very you know a team of um you know fairly sophisticated analysts and um you know team members having a targeted allocation to trend as a part of their overall um you know, diversifying strategies can be very useful. And that's where, you know, they understand what they're getting with the strategy. Um, they understand how to evaluate it in the context of the overall book. And, you know, in particular, that they will not fall prey to evaluating that trend strategy on its own over short time periods. Because I think that's where a lot of allocators maybe fell into um, problems over the last, you know, five to 10 years, where maybe they allocated a trend, they saw the arguments for having it as being a complement to the rest of their strategies. But maybe if there were a couple of years where trend-only strategies underperformed, maybe they lost faith and um, deallocated at the wrong time. And then they didn't have it in their portfolio in you know, a period like the last year or two where it really delivered. For investors that maybe do not have as large of a you know a, an amount of capital to allocate, or maybe they um, you know, just aren't as sophisticated. I think there's a clear argument for having a broader, um, you know, multi-strat type of diversifier where you can expect the sharp to be higher. You can still expect it to de deliver some of those um, complementary um, return profile characteristics that we're looking for, but um, will be a little bit easier to hold through the full cycle. So I think that's one benefit of the multi-strat approach. So, so it's partially driven by this behavioral characteristic of making it more digestible is an expression people have used or making it easier for people to, you know, you, obviously you're not going to get the benefit of managed futures when you need it if you can't stick with the strategy over time. So maybe having some of these diversifying strategies can, can make it easier to hold over time. Is, is that it? I think that is one important characteristic. I mean, there's a number of other benefits that we see from the multi-strat approach um, beyond that behavioral aspect, which would be, um, you know, the embedded leverage of these markets we trade really have a lot of attractive properties in terms of being able to, um, you know, get around some of the potential drawbacks of diversification. You know, if a manager, if an allocator is going out and allocating to individual managers in you know these different spaces so allocating to a trend manager and a macro manager and you know maybe a short-term manager and so on um, suppose each of those is running at 10 vol the diversification you get among those managers is essentially going to water down the risk but also the return you're going to get at the end of the day by managing these in a single portfolio we're able to kind of use that embedded leverage to our advantage so hit the vol targets at the underlying style level 
and then deliver, you know, at the top of the portfolio, what we're looking for, which typically is about 10% vol. So that's one attractive uh, benefit of the multi-strat approach. You get fee netting, um, you get integrated risk management so that, you know, again, if an allocator is um, allocating to individual managers, there may be, on average, they may have low correlation, but at times they may end up having um, high correlation just, you know, by chance or just because of the way these different strategies cycle through. Um, our risk management is able in real time to look at the exposures of all these different elements of the portfolio and adjust the risk at the top level, adjust, you know, concentration limits and so on to make sure that we're not overexposed to any one area, which we see as a big benefit of the multi-strat approach. And, you know, if you think about the history of managed futures, you know, you've been in the, or Campbell have been in the f business 50 years and, you know, it started off very much as this absolute return strategy to capture, um, you know, those trends in markets. But as we've been talking about, increasingly being used by institutional allocators as, crisis risk offset or crisis alpha, et cetera. And what's come with that sometimes has been, you know, discussion, well, given that it's going to be, say, a trend following program is going to be used as a component in a multi-asset portfolio and for that possible diversification and protection component, you know, people would say, well, should you then cap the equity beta or should you also be maybe more responsive, particularly with respect to trading equities? Are they valid ideas or are you getting too um, too much into optimizing the trend portfolio uh, when you go down that path? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think it, uh, again, comes down to understanding the um, objectives and the profile of a particular investor and having the conversation with the investor to understand, um, you know, what is best suited to um, their needs and their goals. And so we do have um, in you know, those trend only mandates that I mentioned, we do have a couple of clients that do have, um, you know, some type of beta cap or exposure cap, um, or correlation cap on equities. Um, and without getting specifically into that, you know, we have clients that are happy with that, understand what they're getting, understand the trade-offs with that, where you would expect, you know, maybe the full sample sharp to be lower, but the other, um, you know, risk mitigating properties like convexity or um, skewness to be better. And so for that type of client, you know, we do feel that's suitable. But for others, um, it's better not to put on that type of constraint. So you just need to understand what the client, um, what's best for the client. Yeah, no, I mean, um, sort of listening to this conversation, uh, it kind of also reminds me of um, an, another kind of Maybe a new, um, I wouldn't say it's new because it's been around for a while, but it certainly got a lot more attention in 2022, um, not least because I think our industry did well. Um, but then comes along this point about, well, uh, why not just do a replication of what these great managers are doing and, and do it um, more cheaply? Although... You know, I, I do believe that there are, um, certainly in the trend space, we know that there are some flat fee 1% strategies out there, so so it's not really that much cheaper. But but the idea of, re of replication um, as a whole, uh, I'd love to hear your your thoughts about it, um, whether you think it, it, it can be successful in the long run. And I don't mean the shops that a few years ago tried to build kind of um, uh, cheap is not the right word, but but let's just use it anyway. Kind of cheap trend-following models um, because they say, well, this is a factor, we can do it, no problem. And then they didn't really deliver what they promised. 
but but the 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 strategy or the replicate I'm thinking about right now is the one that actually takes the constituents of the SOCGEN CTA index and replicate it on the background of just analyzing the daily returns and then doing a linear regression of some sort to come up with what they believe are the exposures uh, across and and then only across 14 different markets um, and so on and so forth. So I'm curious about that. Uh, I'm curious about um, how you feel about being replicated because you're in that index, of course, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, I think we we welcome the you know evolution of the space and competition in the space. I don't personally believe that the replication approach that you described where you're actually, you know, looking at manager returns and then using regression-based approaches to back out exposures is a very efficient way to um, build a low-cost trend strategy. I think, you know, first of all, a lot of the managers in the space, including us, have really, um, you know, become, I'd say, pretty competitive in terms of those trend-only strategies and the fees that are um, charged for that. Um, you know, so I would say investors currently are getting um, very good value for the money they pay for trend-only strategies from reputable managers that have a lot of experience doing this. Um, you know, I, I think the, un, you know, the understanding of how to build a basic trend strategy is, is fairly well known now. It, you know, it's not a secret how you um, construct a diversified set of momentum signals and how you can do that in a robust way with, you know, wide set of lookbacks and specifications, um, you know, understanding what markets you should include and exclude in terms of liquidity and trading costs and so on, thinking about how you build um, risk management and portfolio construction on top of that, um, and also how to build, um, you know, trading models that will be efficient and minimize slippage and costs. All of those are things that, you know, high quality managers in our space have done for decades. And I think there's, you know, many good examples in the space of managers that an investor can go to to um, make that allocation for a you know very um, competitive price. So you know I don't really see the argument so much for um, you know going to somebody that's replicating the strategies based on inferring um, you know positions from the returns of those managers. You mentioned that you didn't think it was very efficient. Can you see specific risks actually as well uh, in doing so? Um, because obviously they don't know what the manager's positions are. Um, they can't so so they don't know how to necessarily manage any risk associated with those positions. I would imagine. So, um, what do you, do you? I mean, I I take on board the efficiency of it, but are there anything else that you think investors um, should think about when they look at kind of replication versus going to the source? Yeah, I think especially when market conditions are changing quickly, you know, which we've seen a few instances over the last year or two, um, you know, that's a time where that lag in the measurement and estimation could make a difference. And also, as you said, um, you know, the uh, inference from, um, you know, aggression of a manager's returns is inherently going to boil down those exposures to a, Q, a few key factors. And on average, I think in a year like 2022, that will pick up the proper exposures. But I think there are other times and, you know, especially at turning points where that really might not work that well. And so, again, I think there's no substitute for, um, you know, the experience of a manager that's been doing this for a while and that has the um, risk management overlay on top that's, you know, point in time to the actual positions that the manager's holding. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. Alan, where do you want to go next? Yeah, well, we kind of jumped ahead of uh, the whole topic of research, which I guess is kind of part of this as well, because um, 
you know, you, you talked about kind of the evolution and, and this is a very conscious evolution for Campbell moving away from trend into all of these other um, uh, various uh, strategies. And, and you mentioned that how uh, an important part of the research process was ensuring that you're not somehow uh, picking up, you know, equity beta or bond beta, even when um, th 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 that's not uh, part, part, part of the objective. So, I mean, what is it that you put in place or what does a good research process that, that allows you to harness the uh, capability of all of the researchers that you have and ensure that you're, you're developing systems in, in a robust fashion? Well, we actually believe that our uh, research process and that full um, you know, life cycle of research um, that we've developed over the last you know, two plus decades is really an important part of our edge. Um, sometimes we call it our meta model, you know, that there's not one model that we trade in the portfolio today or at any point in the past or the future that's going to be, you know, the holy grail that will, um, you know, be our edge. But instead, this process that we've refined in terms of, you know, how to identify new areas of research that would be valuable, how do we undertake that research in the early stages, and then importantly, how do we review that research in a rigorous way to make sure it stands up to scrutiny. You know, all of that is, um, you know, is really valuable to us. And so, you know, we've been, um, you know, we've had in place for, I would say, probably 15 plus years, what we call a peer review process, where once a new model or a new piece of research has gone through the early stages of validation and shows promise, it will go to a set of um, meetings and discussion and idea sharing with other team members that are not part of that that core research team that built the model. And in that process, you know, we're looking for a number of things, I and mean, we're certainly looking for um, how did it perform in a variety of um, you know environments or regimes historically. Um, we also are thinking about how does it correlate with you know what we have in the portfolio today. But it's really important from our perspective to stress test that idea as much as possible to try to challenge it and think about where the um, situations where it might break down or why might the, you know, the thesis that we've developed for why that model should should work, you know, would those um, conditions not be in place or when would they be violated? And so that, you know, again, is something that has been an important part of our process for a couple of decades. I think it's really worked well for us in terms of, um, you know, what I would say closing the gap between you know, back-tested in-sample performance versus out-of-sample because, you know, the main danger, I think, for quant researchers is to, you know, find those spurious um, relationships or spurious strategies where maybe in the back-test you have a nice sharp and the equity line, it goes up, and as soon as you put it in a hockey stick. So it's really what we want to avoid. And I think increasingly over time, you know, you've gotten better at better at, you know, identifying those strategies that will likely have value out of sample and, you know, uh, discarding those that are not likely to. And what, what are the kinds of things that would make you, um, you know, believe that something is just spurious? So, I mean, do you need to have some kind of intuitive rationale? And does that come before the model is generated? Or is it kind of an exposed explanation? Or how do you think about that? For the most part, we do want a rationale or what we call an investment thesis that's stated and written down before we start looking at the data, um, essentially pre-register that idea. Now, that um, thesis is more important for uh, models like macro or models related to trend or maybe some of the equity fundamental models. For some of the shorter term statistically driven models, um, the thesis may be a little bit more vague. And in that case, we might rely 
much more heavily on the empirical validation. But in every case, we want to have some type of understanding about, you know, where the conditions in which we'd expect this to work and, you know, when would we expect it not to work. Yeah, so that's really, um, you know, the starting point. And then we would, through the research process, think about how do we stress test that? How do we, you know, think about the conditions where it might not work? And so a big part of that would be thinking about some type of out-of-sample um, holdout or out-of-sample test that the data has not been exposed to. Sometimes that would based on, be based on a time period um, for those same markets that, um, you know, that, that have not been seen yet. But often it would be, you know, applying the data to a different set of markets. That's where having quant equities, for example, can be really useful. Or thinking about, could we test this on, you know, alternative markets that we've not tested on yet, or maybe even Chinese commodity markets. Things such as that can be really useful to you know, to stress test and validate an idea. And, you know, one of the things that you hear often from managers is about how their systems are adaptive and responsive to changes in market conditions, etc. How do you balance kind of the adaptability uh, objective or desire versus, you know, having very long data sets? Um, so, for example, if, you know, if, if, if it was the case that markets were now trading, you know, last year was very unusual, in terms of very strong directional moves, we you know we see begin expanded ranges, much more volatile conditions and bonds, maybe much more like what we saw back in, in the eighties and nineties. I'm guessing, uh, and very different to say the twenty ten. So, you know, from 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 a kind of a you know multi strat and 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 system selection perspective, you know, how much weight does does the overall system put on on kind of more recent data versus longer term data, or or does it? Or does it just kind of test it on on, on on kind of the whole data series? It's a mix, but I would say we would put more weight on the whole data series in understanding the behavior across um, as long a history as possible. I think this last year is a good example where having that understanding of, you know, uh, macro dynamics in the 70s is really important. And I think that was something that maybe because of our DNA, our history at Campbell, you know, we had been thinking about those questions even when, maybe it seemed completely esoteric to worry about inflation. That was something that we built into our research and review process, even in, you know, called the 2010s when inflation was nowhere to be seen. So we want to understand the behavior of, you know, these different models in, you know, this wide variety of regimes and not just put weight on what's happened in the last year or two. Um, and also when we have an extremely diversified portfolio of strategies, we understand that, you know, not all strategies are going to be performing at all times. Diversification means that, you know, some things will be working and others aren't. And we're perfectly comfortable with that. Um, we do want to have in place some way of evaluating when a strategy maybe is no longer, um, you know, suitable for the market environment or maybe just is not um, performing in line with expectations. Um, we used to discuss you know, guidance to help us with that decision. We think about defining a distribution of expected outcomes for every strategy in the portfolio and monitor that in real time. But those are pretty wide um, ranges that we allow a strategy to, you know, go through in terms of its performance before something is pulled. So again, it's not a very reactive um, response based on recent performance, but more just, you know, some statistical guidance for um, how is something doing relative to expectations? And if if something is pulled, does it stay within the repertoire? With with kind of does it sit on the bench, waiting to to come back on if it if it starts to show show life again? It would typically yeah. yes, and and there's actually a an intermediate step where we would typ uh, typically deallocate you know a strategy by maybe half 
for a period of time when it goes below a certain threshold. If it you know continues to underperform, we could remove it entirely. But we would um, then keep it on the bench, and it could go back if you know if it seems like it's suitable for the market environment as things change. So there's kind of an inherent kind of belief there that if something is de- kind of has deteriorated, that that's likely to continue, and if something is starting to improve, that that's likely to continue. Is that kind of just a belief, and that's how the markets operate? That these things come in and out of fashion or come come work for a period of time and then won't uh, but when they do start to start to work that there's an element of persistence is that fair to say uh maybe to a limited extent but again i would say that this is not a um it's not very reactive or it's not that we're you know changing the allocations as a performance changes you know incrementally so it's more meant to be at the extremes um, you know, to have guardrails to say we might be missing something here, or there may be more, something about uh, market conditions interacting with strategy that we don't understand. And you know, fortunately, when you have, you know, as we do, over a hundred individual strategies in the flagship portfolios, that gives a lot of um, room to you know to remove uh, you know a few strategies and still have sufficient diversification. I think if you have a limited set of strategies, then it's a more challenging problem because if you remove something. You're clearly hurting your diversification um, if you're not able to replace it with something else. So, you know, it is a balance for us that's that's given against the background of that strong diversification of the overall portfolio. Yeah, no, I mean, speaking on the diversification, there's kind of two uh, debates we often have on the podcast. Um, and one is kind of um, the number of markets you should trade. Um, is there real evidence that 300 markets or 200 markets is better than the most liquid 60 markets, for example? And the other thing is actually about you know the ben the, the benefit or potential benefit of diversifying across strategies, even within just trend following. I mean, different types of trend following strategies. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on 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 these topics. Yeah, uh, the organizing principle we start with is the concept of effective bets, and we want as good quants to um, essentially maximize the number of effective bets we trade. You know, subject to each of those having positive, sharp, or positive expected returns. So, you know, what we mean by that is that we want um, either you know more markets or more um, you know you could call them effective markets through things like relative value trading or more strategies that will you know each have low correlation, so that we add as we add more of those, then we're going to increase the expected risk-adjusted return of the overall portfolio. So in the market space, what that means is, you know, of course, we would like to have a diverse market set. Um, we understand that as you go from the, um, you know, the 25th to the 26th equity index, particularly, you know, in a particular region among what you trade, the incremental value of that is not going to be high for directional strategies because the correlation both for the buy and hold and for the, you know, like a momentum strategy would be high. So um, it's fine to add more of those, but you're probably not going to expect a lot of incremental value at a certain point. Um, Now, as you start doing relative value trading, you can get quite a lot of incremental value by adding highly correlated markets because there you are neutralizing to that common variation and you're picking up on the you know those residuals so that can really increase the number of effective bets by trading these markets on a relative value basis um, but you know subject to you know those points I just made I think other considerations when we're thinking about adding new markets would be the liquidity of the trading cost is certainly important 
um, thinking about, you know, are there any regulatory restrictions currently or that we would expect to be coming soon that would make us not want to trade a market? And then just the operational lift. I think, you know, there's been a lot of push um, from some managers space to, um, you know, more esoteric markets or alternative markets. And we've definitely pushed some in that direction as well. But we have to think about, you know, where do we want to devote our resources to have the biggest marginal impact? And at some level, trading a trend strategy on, you know, very um, operationally difficult alternative markets may not be the best approach for us as a firm, as opposed to focusing more on new strategies or, you know, trading the existing markets on a relative value basis. So, you know, that would be, I guess, the way that we think about markets. And then when we think about the strategy set, um, we do want, again, to increase the number of effective bets through diversifying strategies. So that's where historically we've seen so much value by adding you know, macro and equity market neutral and short term, because those have been, you know, very low correlation with the strategies currently in the portfolio. And as we add more strategies in those areas, they tend to be low correlation even to other strategies within their set. A new macro strategy tends to really add a lot of value to the existing macro book. So if we get back to trend and think about diversification within trend, you know, we understand that the underlying momentum factor in trend is is powerful and strong. And there's a lot of different ways to capture that. There's a lot of different different, you know, mathematical specifications and sets of lookbacks that you can use that will tend to have, you know, reasonably strong correlation, call it, you know, 0.6 or 0.7 is not, maybe even 0.8 is not unusual across, you know, trend models that would have different specifications trading similar market sets. But that does not mean that, so that means that the increase in the number of effective bets through adding more trend strategies is not going to be as high as it is in short term and macro. But that does not mean that you shouldn't continue to diversify your trend book. I think we've seen a lot of value and a lot of benefit by having a very broad set of trend strategies and specifications. Because even if over a long sample, the correlation is quite high and the sharp may be similar among the strategies, over short periods of time, you can get quite large, um, just random variation in those. And you can get either lucky or unlucky by a particular choice of parameters. So I think it's a mistake to look at that full sample you know, correlation and similarity of sharp among different specifications and conclude from that, well, I can just do a, you know, moving average model with the six month look back, and that's going to be just as good as anything else. I think we really want to have that diversification. The final thing I'll say about trend is we've actually um, been finding a lot of opportunities in basing some new alphas off of underlying trend signals. So thinking about ways to capture some different themes that start from a, um, a momentum signal, but apply either relative value or using other, you know, mathematical methods around that, that will be still picking up the trend beta exposure, but have alpha on top of that. And that's a, been a big focus for us the last couple of years. And it continues to be a big push for us. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I, I wanted to stay on the topic of markets for a second, even though it kind of has its own little, um, um, section here in in our question uh, sheet, but it does uh, it does apply because you uh, I think you mentioned it earlier, and that's actually ESG, right? Because um, I think there is uh, certainly, um, as you rightly said, there's been a, a big push by many managers to move into alternative markets, but there's also this kind of universal push from all sides about you know ESG and sort of so forth. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts about, uh, and I don't even know whether you uh, trade markets where you could say, I mean, a good example would be China, right? I mean, China is probably not that ESG friendly if you had to score it. So have you had any, do you have any um, thoughts about it? Have you had any, um, if you do, do you have any, th- uh, have you had any pushback from people saying, well, this doesn't smell uh, right? And, and, and how do you uh, combine all of this uh, as, as a firm? Yeah, it's been a area of, you know, we've been giving attention to um, ESG for a few years now. Um, I would say it's been a, um, you know, gradual opening and a gradual process for us. I would say in terms of investor interest, you know, we have been getting quite a number of questions for the last few years. It's probably been tilted more to European investors. I think in Europe, it's a much bigger theme. And we do actually have a, a usage fund that, um, in terms of the equity, the cash equity book has a, you know a restricted list or an exclusion list that meets ESG criteria, and also because that portfolio doesn't trade commodities, I think that gets around, you know, a lot of the the most sensitive markets that investors would be curious about. You know, I think beyond that, you know, the question I think a lot of managers in our space on the futures and derivative side have been, you know, struggling to identify how do you think about ESG in this market set. And, you know, if, if particularly if we get beyond saying, let's exclude, you know, certain commodities markets that might be difficult. When we've done research on this, we've looked at, you know, kind of expanding our risk factor approach that we apply um, using, you know, traditional market risk factors and thinking about, can we identify at the country level um, using data from official sources like, you know, the UN, World Bank, and so on, um, measures of uh, a country's, you know, scoring, um, its level and rate of change of progress in environmental, social, and governance indicators. And then if we can identify those scores for a country, we can map back that back to markets, and we can potentially put, you know, point-in-time constraints in the portfolio using essentially risk factors to say, let's make sure we're not too exposed on the long side or the short side to, or particularly, you know, on the short side, I guess, to um, these themes. We actually have not, um, you know, put that into the portfolio in production yet. I think we haven't had the, you know, the desire from investors to do that, but it's just research that we've done to make sure we understand how we could apply ESG themes um, in the futures and derivatives portfolio. And, you know, we're continuing to look for those. I think on the alpha side, you know, we do see weather um, as being an important factor for some markets, and particularly as climate change leads to more extreme weather conditions. You can think about, you know, energy prices and the way that those are affected by um, temperature swings. Potential, we do have a model that actually trades something like that based on um, weather data. Um, we've also done research on trading, you know, grain markets, for example, based on some weather extremes. Um, but it's something that I'd say we continue to explore, but it's not been our highest priority. Uh, the one other thing I'll add is that as a firm, I think we have been aligned with ESG goals in terms of our corporate culture. I mean, our um, founder, Keith Campbell, has one of the largest clean water foundations um, in the world. And, um, you know, it's something that has been an important um, part of our DNA as a firm. So that will definitely not change going forward. No, and I I completely agree with you. It is really a difficult um, topic for, I think, in particular, our industry to deal with. Um, One of our previous guests, um, Harold from TransTrend, he he actually had an interesting point that I had not thought about myself. And I, I don't necessarily know if I'm saying it completely the way he meant it, but but what what he did what I think he said was that because we don't really have an opinion about the investments we do, we follow rules and, and that's how it is. 
So essentially, when we have exposure in, in certain markets, we just carry risk, meaning we allow other people to actually transact because we are there to do, um, you know, to take some of that exposure off their hands uh, in one way or, or another. Um, and, and that carrying of risk actually um, doesn't really mean that you... I don't know, have a, a kind of an ESG footprint the way other investment strategies might might have it. I, I thought it was an interesting observation or or, or, um, or or opinion that he had about it, but I'm sure there will be, you know, there'll be more about these, um, these things for sure in, in the future. Alan, um, where are we heading next? Yeah, I, well, I guess um, we're, we're kind of veering into kind of risk considerations um, a, a little bit, and, and so so maybe just to delve into that a little bit more. Obviously, um, you know, I guess you've kind of touched on a little bit. You know, from a pure trend perspective, yeah, what are the kind of key ways to try and mitigate drawdowns? Like, I guess we've kind of touched on it a little bit with terms of diversifying strategies and being di- di- diversified. Uh, across managers, but but maybe it's useful to get your perspective on on the kind of risk management process. Is it difficult or, or more difficult or different uh, between, say, a pure trend portfolio and a, and a multi-strat? You know, you talked about how you can get into relative value trading, quant macro, all of those things, which can give you good opportunities. But you know, we've all had plenty of experiences of you know troubles of periodic blow-ups like the quant crisis in 2007 um, and you know relative value trades going going astray as well so it, it, is that a more challenging uh, portfolio to, to manage from a risk management perspective I don't know if I'd say it's more challenging but there are some nuances or some differences between a pure trend portfolio and a multi-strat portfolio for us in terms of risk management so if we start with the um, the multi-strat portfolios, you know, our flagships like Absolute Return and the Diversified Managed Futures portfolio, there are risk management objectives boiled down to a couple of key um, aspects. One is we want to deliver a stable level of risk at the top level of the portfolio. So that means we actually do um, have a risk target, um, you know, for an expected risk level that we're looking to hit. And we set a band around that in terms of the expected risk that we seek to keep the portfolio in. And if the risk in terms of exposures is getting higher or lower than that, you know, the outer edges of that band, then we will adjust the overall um, portfolio positioning to make sure it stays within that. Um, we're also looking for diversification among those styles to ensure you know, that we actually do have that balanced approach. And so for that, we also have kind of expected risk budgets and ranges around those budgets for the individual styles of the portfolio. And then finally, we really want to make sure we avoid concentration in any one dimension. We want to avoid tail risk. So there are a lot of, you know, different aspects of tail risk management that we probably don't have time to get into in detail today, but that would be things like, you know, CVAR and VAR limits at the market level, at the sector level, um, at the factor exposure level. We've built up a large risk factor library over the years that has, you know, both market and sector and geographical exposures, but also things like macro exposures. You know, how are we exposed to central bank tightening? How are we exposed to the risk of stagflation or even a political event like Brexit or, you know, something like COVID? COVID. We can build risk factors that measure exposure to that. And that's, you know, another way that we protect against tail risk. And so all of that is, you know, for these multi-strap portfolios, 
are helping us to deliver that um, strong risk adjusted return with stable risk with low correlation. So then if we turn to a trend-only portfolio, you can certainly manage a trend portfolio with those same approaches, but you do need to think about that trade-off between the expected sharp and those other kind of risk mitigation or um, you know, skewness type properties that you might want from a trend portfolio. And there you see that if you do tightly um, target risk for that portfolio, you probably on average will have a somewhat higher sharp, but you will have, you know, the cost of having maybe less convexity and less skewness at times when you want it. And so for those portfolios, typically we do allow um, a wider variation in that type of, top level of risk. Um, we actually, in our uh, trend-only portfolios, have an additional um, approach we call dynamic risk targeting that actually adjusts the risk level of the portfolio based on, you know, it's essentially its complementarity to equity exposures. So when the correlation to equities is low and equity vol is high, you would allow your um, trend portfolio to have a higher risk. And, you know, conversely, when it's picking up some of the same exposures as equities, and equity vol is low, then you would say, let's bring down the risk. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the the way that we do that within the trend portfolios. And also the trend portfolios might have less tight constraints on some of those tail risk measures because you want allow you want to allow room to run for some of those exposures, but still have some type of limits to make sure you have you don't have too much concentration in those portfolios. And when you're speaking in terms of risk there, is that in terms of uh, forecast volatility of the of the portfolio? Yes, that's right. And there's, you know, various ways we can measure that, but I think that's a good way to say it, forecasted volatility. Yeah. Um, one of the th topics that's come up with a couple of the participants is is kind of rules versus discretion. And we all know about the value of systematic trading. Uh, but, you know, periodically there might be uh, areas or, or, or instances when there may be an override or a discretionary decision has to be made. And of course, the whole research process is discretionary and deciding what markets to trade and all of that. So where do you see the opportunities for, you know, where it's important to have that discretion uh, and where where do you try to avoid making discretionary decisions and, and be ruled based as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, we start from the perspective that we believe in the value of the systematic process and that we believe that, you know, as humans, we're naturally prone to make mistakes, particularly at times when, you know, things are moving fast and maybe we're under stress. And so we want to, you know, take advantage of the systematic process as much as possible. Now, that being said, we do believe that it's not realistic to have, you know, a 100% automated system from start to finish. As you said, the research process inherently requires, at least at this point, you know, some human judgment, both in terms of coming up with the topics you want to explore and evaluating those topics and ultimately making some decision about allocating. Now, in terms of the live production portfolio, uh, you know, for the most part, it runs behind the scenes, you know, every time uh, an event occurs to, uh, you know, generate desired exposures and positioning and uh, risk constraints and so on. But we actually do have an investment committee that meets every day at 8.30 a.m. We've had this in place, I guess, going back all the way to just after 9-11 was when Campbell's um, investment committee was put in place. And it's intended to be a largely passive observatory process where each day we come in and we use um, you know, some of the analytical and visualization tools we have to help make sense of the exposures in this pretty complicated set of portfolios. You, know, you can imagine when you've got over 100 derivatives markets, 5,000 cash equities, 130 strategies across you know, 10 or more individual portfolios, um, it can be, you know, the dimensionality is quite big. So you need to have ways to help boil that down into exposures that you can quickly analyze. Um, but, you know, each day, that's what we do. We come in and take a look at 
how are we positioned? How are those positions changing overnight or over the last you know few days? Um, thinking about what macro news is coming out that might affect the portfolio, what other events might be happening, you know, making sure from a production standpoint everything is running properly, and if there's a deployment upcoming that we know about it and we have eyes on it, um, and all of that again is just meant to make sure that we are not missing anything and that we're you know up to speed on you know, where do we have exposures? Um, but it's actually very valuable in the sense of thinking about what events might be upcoming that, you know, maybe the standard risk management process may not fully be suited for. And so, you know, if you think back to 2016 with Brexit or, you know, the U.S. election in November 2016, those were cases where, you know, we felt that maybe just the standard, you know, VAR and CVAR type risk measures might not be sufficient for the event risk that would be upcoming. So we were able, because we had time and we knew that that event was coming, we had time to work with the, the risk team and other researchers to build in place additional layers for protection, like build additional risk factors, additional measures of volatility that we could would, could monitor. And that was really helpful. And that's the playbook we followed with um, you know, going into COVID. Um, that's the playbook we followed in the early part of this year going into the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And, you know, that additional layer of human oversight helping to build additional layers of systematic protection is really useful. Um, the final layer is, you know, those times when there's an unknown unknown that hits markets or something that really can't be systematized and we need some human judgment. Um, that's rare, but there are times where we, you know, maybe have a market there, you know, where there are issues with that market um, and we might need to temporarily remove it. Um, you know, again, taking the example of um, Russia, Ukraine, as that was heating up at the end of February, we actually did, you know, we were trading the Russian ruble going into that and we made the decision to remove that. It was probably about a week afterwards that I guess most uh, counterparties required that their trading partners remove that market, but we, you know, preemptively did that. And that's the kind of thing that we would do, you know, rarely, but if needed, um, just to make sure that we don't um, end up with an exposure that, you know, wouldn't be suitable for the portfolio. Now, before I jump to a completely different topic, I do want to stick uh, or stay with one particular thing. Some of the very best friends we have here on the podcast, we have some slight difference of opinions in terms of whether you should have static position size or dynamic position size. And um, I know you speak very eloquently about uh, many topics. I know you just uh, mentioned earlier you have you have some dynamic position sizing in in some of your portfolios, but leave that aside. Just in general, um, because the argument is that if you have static, like probably some, not all, but some of the pioneers of trend following started out, you get into your position, you keep that position until you exit it, and that's how it's done. So you look at it on a on a trade by trade basis. You don't use a VAR, uh, uh, you know, risk management framework or anything like that. Um, so, so one of the arguments is, of course, well, if you have a static position size and you're hunting for outliers, that's your best chance of really sticking with the position uh, throughout, you know, the five percent of trades that really goes completely uh, far beyond what what you can imagine. Uh, of course, there's also a give back side to to those trades, I guess. But and then uh, the the argument is that well, if you do uh, dynamic position sizing, um, you can't be sure what exposure you're going to have uh, during that outlier trade. It could be smaller, it could be bigger, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in general, uh, the argument is it's probably not going to be as big and so on and so forth. Now, I've said I'm um, on record saying I don't see the evidence of one being better than the other. They're kind of different. But the whole point about ignoring 
you could say volatility and correlations, etc., etc., which you do if you stay static. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts, maybe on on that, and and see if you have a a more compelling argument than I have as to one one side of of this uh, debate. Yeah, I, I I'm hesitant to weigh too uh, deeply into that debate, but I would just say that we are strongly on team dynamic sizing. Um, you know, I think it just it fits more clearly with our um, our overall investment philosophy. Um, we believe that you need to account for changing market volatility and correlations. And, you know, again, to make sure that you're avoiding tail risk, to make sure that you do actually capture that large number of effective bets that we're going for. And in fact, I'd say we went probably even a little more strongly in that direction um, during the period after COVID where we we actually sped up the reactivity of our position sizing and our you know momentum and macro models because I think we kind of have the belief that markets are evolving more quickly now and that you need to adjust your exposure um, to reflect that. So, um, you know, I guess I, I kind of I guess we kind of take that as a um, a starting point and it's a little bit hard for me to to argue for, you know, one side versus the other other than just to say that that's the approach that works for us and not to say that another approach might not work for somebody else. But, um, you know, for us, it's no, absolutely. I, I, I thought that was perfectly phrased as as I would have expected from you, Kevin. Anyways, let me ask you about something completely different. Um, I call it capacity, fees, flows. So uh, after 2008, uh, a lot of managers uh, had great inflows. Probably some managers probably hit capacity without necessarily knowing it or admitting to it. And I think, um, and this is just my kind of uh, interpretation on the fly here, but, but, but maybe... As money left the industry, the industry was left with a lot of capacity suddenly. And I think that also uh, allowed investors, certain types of investors, large investors, to really put the pressure on fees. And, you know, they got some great deals, I think, from 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 some managers. Now, what what I've heard in the last year or so is that some managers are actually starting to get back towards capacity of some sort. And therefore, it's not so great to have um, a lot of very low fee uh, money in your AUM. And and I'm kind of thinking, you know, if we are so good at what we do, which I believe we are, I mean, we've been around for, for decades, and, and I think the strategy continues to deliver on its promise, maybe fees should go up. I mean, why should we, you know, continue to just uh, lower our fees? Because it is not as easy as people might think it is to do what we do and the investments that you have to do in order to be uh, on top of being, uh, you know, a systematic quant firm is is, is significant. Um, so just love to hear your your thoughts on this. And, and also one other thing, maybe just to hear your perspective on this, uh, and that is, People might think that after a year like this, that uh, and it was clear already maybe by the summer that trend followers and CTAs would have a good year, or at least they were they were doing well, uh, whilst uh, traditional assets were not. So you would think a lot of people would then start allocating to it. But when I look around and I see sort of the early numbers that we've seen uh, at the end of 2022, it doesn't strike me as there was a lot of inflow. On the contrary, I actually think a lot of investors might have taken profits or rebalanced out of out of the one thing that made money. So I'd love to just to hear your thoughts, observations about that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there to unpack. I would start by saying, I know. You, <laughs> you're not going to get argument from me that, um, you know, I think we are earning our fees as an industry. I think that, um, 
you know, maybe there is an argument that some investors have undervalued um, systematic investors in terms of the, um, you know, the marginal value they can provide. And um, I, you know, share your feeling that probably continuing to, you know, lower fees further from here doesn't really, you know, make sense for the investor or the the allocator or the manager. Um, But when we think about capacity, you know, we do somewhat differentiate pure trend strategies from the multi-strat portfolio. And when we think about capacity, we really start at the, um, you know, the granular level of individual strategies and think about the capacity of those strategies. So for us, short-term is actually, you know, fairly capacity constrained, um, as you might expect based on the speed and, you know, the risk of slippage and so on. Um, equity market neutrals, to some extent, is capacity constrained. Some of the macro RV trades are also capacity constrained. Momentum is is less so, at least, on a, you know, based on our size. So we're currently $4 billion as a firm. Um, I think we feel that we've got a lot more capacity to go in, um, you know, some of the pure trend strategies. But in, you know, some of those multi-strat portfolios, there is a limit there. And so we're being very thoughtful about, um, you know, the fees that we're offering for these different products. And thankfully, we have been seeing, you know, good interest from investors, you know, at the fee level that um, our products are offered at. So we, you know, thankfully have seen good inflows over the last year, year and a half. You know, when I think about the flows for the space overall, I think probably, you know, what you're saying is true, particularly in, in the institutional side. I think there maybe hasn't been as much institutional money flowing to the space this year as one might expect. Um, that might be just partly based on, um, you know, the decision process is longer there. The evaluation process takes time. So maybe the industry will see that in 2023. I think on the, uh, you, what you might call the retail side, like 40 Act mutual funds in the U.S., there have been, I'd say, quite strong flows. I mean, we've seen that for ourselves as well as some of the other, you know, high-quality managers out there. So it's mixed. And I think, um, you know, I would say there's certainly attention on the space now, positive attention. I think investors are finally realizing maybe having a long stock and long bond, um, you know, position is not enough for their overall portfolio. And so um, I think it's our job now as an industry to really continue making the case and, you know, helping investors to see the value they can get by investing in our space. Yeah. Alan, do you want to do your last round of yeah, uh, just questions a couple before of, I couple wrap up? A couple of quick ones. Um, I, I, you know, I guess we, we talked a little bit the role in, of trend and managed futures in a multi-asset portfolio. Uh, kind of going back to that perspective, if, if you're an allocator trying to think about these strategies, you know, how, do, how should people think in terms of expected returns for, say, trend following uh, and, and kind of manage future strategies? Is it, you know, is there a reason why the sharp should be, you know, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 or whatever it is? is? I mean, that's roughly what the SockGen trend has delivered historically. Um, and, and maybe on a forward looking basis, obviously, you know, it's always very hard to say, well, we're going to have more or less trends, who knows. But, you know, if you were, if somebody was saying to you, you know, for the fest, next five years, you know, obviously you can't give a, <laughs> you know, a, a return. Uh, but but how how would you kind of kind of help investors think about what what, what, what the returns they sh- or what the range uh, they should reasonably expect? Yeah, I mean, I think if we focus first on trend strategies, as you said, um, you know, the realized sharp over the long term of trend strategies out of sample is in that range of 0.5, maybe 
you know, maybe a little higher, maybe 0.6. Um, and you can think about a range around that that, I mean, I would use um, kind of the long-term experience that we've seen in the industry of, of real-life strategies to provide some guidance there. And so I think that's um, where I would start in terms of, you know, giving an, an allocator expectations. I would definitely emphasize to not think only about the sharp on a standalone basis for these strategies, but to think about how it can be complementary to the investor's overall portfolio. And so that's where correlation comes in. And I think, you know, we've probably all done that exercise where you look at what would be the optimal allocation mixed with traditional assets. And it's much higher than most investors would expect or typically have today. So, you know, that's where, you know, I would emphasize not just the sharp, but the complementary complementarity. And then when we think about our multi-strategy portfolios, you know, as I said, I think we do um, expect uh, to deliver a higher sharp you know, then a trend-only strategy. I think the arguments from a theoretical standpoint are, you know, very clear in terms of increasing the number of effective bets, in terms of really maximizing the diversification. I think out of sample, we've delivered a sharp of one, you know, in, in that kind of range for those multi-strap portfolios. And, you know, some of the other managers in the space have done so as well. So I think for an investor that is looking for, you know, somewhat higher sharp, then, you know, that's a good place to look. But again, either way, um, you know, think not just about the sharp, but about the the benefit to the investors of oral portfolio is important. Okay. And just going back to the pure trend, I mean, you talked about how it's reasonably well known uh, how to run a trend portfolio. I mean, the execution of it, is, I guess, is another question in terms of having the trading infrastructure, et cetera. But, you know, in terms of being multi-speed, multi-market, multi et cetera. I mean, how much of an improvement do you think a sophisticated trend follower can generate over a more vanilla trend follower, uh, for, for want of a better expression. Is it going to be 20% better or 10% or uh, you know, what, what are, what's the magnitude of the potential outperformance, would you say? Yeah, I would say probably in that 10 to 20% range would be reasonable in terms of the long-term sharp. You know, again, I think there's other things you would want to consider, like the, um, you know, the variability around that, the risk of, you know, maybe an outlier based on, you know, a short-term performance deviation would, would you know, maybe the, the range would be tighter for a sophisticated manager, um, you know, and other risk management considerations would also go into that. Yeah, but that's what I want to say. If I could, I just, I, I realized I missed one aspect of your last question that maybe I could return to, which is the, you know, question about expectations going forward. And, you know, one thing that I think we like, you know, as systematic investors is that we're not macro pontificators or we're not prognosticators. And so I am hesitant to do that. But I think, you know, we do need to acknowledge that it seems like the macro environment has changed pretty dramatically over the last year or two. And I think a lot of us know that that period between 2010 and 2020 was, you know, frustrating for a lot of quants because, you know, maybe because of, um, you know, central bank intervention of markets and, and factors such as that, you know, the opportunity set maybe didn't seem as rich and investors maybe didn't see the need to go beyond that long stock and long bond allocation. I think this last year has really shown that, you know, the change in the macro environment, I think we believe that's going to continue to be front and center for the next, you know, year or two as um, the inflation dynamics play out, as, you know, the impact of central bank tightening on economies plays out. And so, you know, we believe that this is a really good environment for this strategy set and we're excited you know, about where it's going to go from here. Sticking with central bank tightening, um, in the last 20 years or so, cash management uh, for for us uh, on, on the funds we manage 
um, has been pretty dull because there was not much we could do and maybe try to avoid the drag of some of the currency uh, negative interest rates uh, that we saw. Interest rates are not zero anymore, as you uh, alluded to. I'm just curious, generally speaking, um, sort of cash management today for the funds that you manage. How how do you see that, and 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 what are the what are the things that you uh, you do? Yeah, it's become a really nice tailwind after a long period where maybe it wasn't a factor at all, or you know potentially a drag. Um, you know, we've seen um, you know for our programs, uh, cash return currently you know in that range approaching four percent, which is really really um, Excellent. And, you know, one benefit of that, actually, that, um, you know, maybe investors don't realize is that that can more than cover the cost of fees. So it's, you know, essentially, you can think of it as them investing for um, negative fees net of that that cash, which is great. Um, in terms of our cash management program, I would say we're not seeking for that to be a major um, incremental driver of returns beyond what you can get with pretty straightforward cash management. So we do um, work with an external cash manager for a lot of our programs, but they're investing in extremely safe assets. I mean, they're short-term, very high-quality, high-credit, liquid cash instruments. We're not looking to um, you know, go into more uh, risky areas to get a little bit of marginal return there. Sure, that makes sense. Now, I just got two questions left for you, Kevin. These are kind of uh, more more personal, but don't don't be don't be worried here because the first one is really just, you know, kind of what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most? Well, maybe it is that you know it's it's easy. I think it is easy to come up with a trend signal, and it's you know fairly easy to replicate you know that basic idea. But I think underneath the surface, there is a lot of sophistication that you know, high quality managers um, undertake in terms of, you know, those aspects of risk management and execution and thinking about the market set that really can add value. And it's an important part of it. So, you know, I think that's one and that, you know, maybe that we've completely uncovered um, all there is to know about trend following. I think continued innovation is still occurring in the area. You know, we're seeing that here. I think other managers are as well. And, you know, it's something that still warrants um, further research and attention as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Last question, very simple, actually. It's kind of just about what you're, you get most excited about uh, or maybe concerned about when you look into 2023. Um, it can, and it, that can be quite broad. It doesn't have to be specifically about, you know, trend following or whatever. But is there anything that springs to mind? Yeah, I think it's just, it's exciting and fascinating to see how uh, the macro environment is going to play out. I think that, you know, again, we don't pretend to be macro prognosticators, um, but, you know, our, our models are very adaptive and can get repositioned quickly. And, you know, I'm just excited to see, or I'm curious to see how the impact of this tightening is going to play out in terms of, um, you know, the economy and and inflation into 2023. Yeah, great, great stuff. On that note, let's wrap up this fascinating conversation. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Uh, we hope that we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue uh, our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find on our website. And not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 
Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.